Luke 7 is where we begin. And we're going to start in verse 36. And we get to Luke 7 in this part of the Gospel of Luke. We're introduced to a man named Simon. Simon is a Pharisee. So he's this religious leader. He's this moral conservative in the nation of Israel. He's a, he has strong convictions. He's sharp. He's, he's outspoken as a, as a Pharisee. And he invites Jesus to have dinner at his house. That's where we picked up the story in Luke 7, verse 36. And that, that in and of itself is kind of interesting. It, it's interesting if you look through the Gospels to, just to see the types of people that Jesus is eating with and the homes that he's in and, and the situations. He's sitting down with all kinds of people for dinner. It, it, it's, it's hard to detect a trend with Christ here. He doesn't have a type of person that he, he only eats with. Uh, there are tax collectors, and there are sinners, and there are, there are politicians, and there are prostitutes, and there are religious leaders like we have here. Uh, I, I would just poke us a little bit, and self-included here, how diverse are, is our dining table? Who, who are we eating with? Is it, do we have a type? Uh, 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 do we have a, uh, people, the only, we only socialize with people and eat with people that are like us in any number of ways? That's uh, off the main road, but uh, I'll throw that and keep going. Um, but here's, here's Jesus with this Pharisee. And so verse 37, we'll pick it up. In the, in the middle of this dinner, verse 37, Behold, see this, catch this, a, a woman of the city. Now, that doesn't mean she has a midtown loft. Uh, are, you, are you with me? All right. She's, she's a prostitute. A woman of the city who was a sinner, uh, a notorious, well-known sinner. When, it, when, when it's used like this way in the gospel, it's, we know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this, he's not just stating the obvious here, but this is a, this is a woman who has a reputation for a, an, an overtly sinful lifestyle. She has all the marks to show that's a sinner, that's a sinful woman. So this woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment and standing behind him at his feet. So I think most of you know this scene. It's not dining tables like we sit at with table and chairs. This is, this is like kind of a low to the ground table and the, the guests would kind of lean on their left elbow and eat with their right hand. And so their feet are behind them away from the table. And so that's kind of the scene. And, and so Jesus is there reclining at the table. And so this woman comes behind with this alabaster flask standing at his feet, weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, I know most of us are familiar with this passage. And so we read that and, and think, OK, I, I know what's going on here. I know what's about to happen. But just. Put yourself, pretend this is the first time you've ever read this. Pretend you're, this, you're in this room. In, and, and you're one of those religious elite in Israel. This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. This, this known woman of the city is here with, in, 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 in this moral elite's house, this Pharisee's house, and everyone's enjoying a nice meal. This, this room full of religious, outwardly religious men. And she ignores the occasion and pays no attention to what's really going on. She ignores everybody else in the room and she makes this beeline for Jesus. 
goes to his feet. And she, she falls at his feet and just begins to sob. Now listen, girls don't dream of growing up to become prostitutes. There, there's no 10-year-old girl that says, when I grow up, I want to be used and abused by filthy men. I want, to, I, want, I, want, I want bad, horrific, tragic things to happen to me. But, so, but this woman who's lived her whole life with shame and feeling unlovable and feeling dirty, she falls at the feet of Jesus and just weeps. It's awkward and it's uncomfortable for the dinner guest. Absolutely. None, none more than Simon. And so Simon the, Simon the Pharisee, he, he thinks to himself, verse 39, and again, he, he's, he's thinking this in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, so you, so you see that, Simon just thought it. <laughs> But Jesus knows exactly what Simon's thinking. He knows better, he knows as well as what he's thinking as you and I can know of what we're saying. And so he, he answers his thoughts with words. Now do you think he's a prophet, Simon? <laughs> and so Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so then Jesus tells this story and he says, quick question, Simon, let's just, let's just say a money lender has two debtors and one of them owes the, the, the lender 500 silver pieces and the other owes him 50 silver, silver pieces. Neither of them can pay, but yet he forgives both of their debts. Who's going to love him more, Simon? Who's going to love him more? Now, Simon, as we'll see, he's self-righteous. And, and, he, and he's trying to leave himself a way out, I think, is the way this is worded, the way his response is worded. He's hesitant. I, I suppose, maybe, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says, bingo, got it. Not a trick question. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, so, so this is a scene, he, he's talking to Simon and he tells a parable to Simon and then he turns to this woman at his feet and, and yet he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house, you, you gave me no water for my feet, she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which is olive oil, normal oil, but she has anointed my feet with costly ointment. So she's looking, he's looking at this woman. He's speaking to Simon. This, this woman is this model of devotion. Simon in contrast to Simon, who does nothing to welcome Jesus as a guest. So verse 47, again, still looking at the woman. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He's not denying, he's not minimizing the sinfulness of the woman. And he doesn't do that with us. And, and so I just say, that what this 
tells us among so many places we can look in Scripture, no matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how great those sins are, there is no sin that, is not, that cannot be forgiven by God for those who trust Him. God's grace covers all of our sin. It's greater than all our sin. So I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, it's not that her love is the basis of Jesus' forgiveness here. That's not it. Her faith is. We'll see that in verse 50. But her forgiveness is completely unearned. It's unmerited. That's the reason she loves so much. That's the whole point. It provokes this response of love for Jesus. Now look back at the text, verse 48. And then he said to her, now he's still looking at her, but he speaks to her and addresses her directly. And I imagine him, I don't, this is my sanctified, maybe sanctified imagination, but lifting her head, picking up her chin, looking her in the face, in the eye. This is a woman who's not used to, peop- not used to making eye contact with people, especially men. She's been used, abused, viewed as an object for sale her, her whole life probably. But Jesus picks up her face, makes eye contact with her in a way that, that, that doesn't look at her like she's a product to be consumed. But he, he looks at her and he says to her, as this one made in the image of God, this is Jesus who knit this woman together in her mother's womb, And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now this sets off a debate around the table. All the religious elite, that just sets them off. And they're like, what authority does this man have to forgive sins? And so they're they're arguing with one another, but Jesus pays no attention. That's how it's recorded for us. He, He just keeps looking at the woman and keeps talking to the woman. And he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I mean, this, is a, this is one of many moments we could look at in the Gospels of just this extravagant, almost scandalous grace. Again, we're so familiar with it, we, it, may, it may lose some of that shock to us, but this is shocking. Jesus commends this no, notorious sinner's faith, and, and he forgives her sin, and he sends her out with something she does not deserve, peace. He rings squeezes and rings from her heart all that guilt and shame that she's lived with her whole life and she leaves with peace. Something that's only for the righteous. Now what in the world does that story have to do with abortion? Or with the unborn? Well, for many years we we have addressed, and I'm so thankful for uh, just a legacy of dealing with this issue. And I did not realize that Baraka was the longest supporting church of of the ministry there at the Pregnancy Center. I'm so so thankful for that. And for years we have addressed the issue of sanctity of human life, particularly that of the unborn. We We are not embarrassed about this at all, this issue. We are unapologetic about this. And speaking about it, it needs to be talked about it. We, we have to see the issue through the lens of Scripture, not just through the, the lens of politics, which it so often stays there. And so often we deal with this issue by laying out our moral positions as Christians and what the Scriptures teach us about this. And, and we lay out scientific reasons for upholding the sanctity of the life 
of the unborn. And those are both important and they both have their place. From Scripture, we've argued over and over again that, that we believe that life, human life begins in the womb at conception. The, the, the moral, spiritual soul is present at conception. This is a human being from the moment of conception. That's life. And, and we also say that all human life is made in the image of God. And, and therefore, it's more valuable than all the rest of the created order. We, we value human life more than cockroach life. And you can be thankful. We pay our exterminator to come and kill, kill all the bugs around here. And we don't even lose any sleep over it. Because human life has a dignity to it. As, as, as because we're made in God's image. There, there are, we can see this so clearly in Scripture. So we unashamedly believe, according to the Bible, that life begins at conception. There's this new strand of DNA that forms and, and by God's doing. And, it, and so you have this being, this, this person that's not his father. It's not his mother. Uh, it, it's his own unique human. It's It's incredible. And so we, we see that from Scripture. We, 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 you, can, you can argue about it scientifically. Science has not been very friendly to the pro-choice movement in recent years. And, 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 and so you have medical technology that allows you with, to see with three dimension and with high definition inside the womb. And you get to see life in its earliest forms. And we know that by eight weeks babies have brain waves and they, they dream and they suck their thumb and they, they, they recoil from pain and they have a heartbeat and they have kidneys that function and they, and they have their own blood type. So we have this whole other human soul in the womb. Science tells us this. That's, so there's the, there's the moral side, the biblical side, there's the scientific side and both of these are important. And here's my point though. We're, we're passionate about the lives of unborn babies and we absolutely should be. And we need to fight for the unborn. We need to be serious. These are the least of these are the least of these, the most vulnerable, the most helpless in society. And Scripture says much about that. We need to have courage to to believe and to say that abortion is sin, that it's the taking of a human life. Yet at the same time, we must acknowledge that that we're not just talking about an issue here. We're talking about Human beings. We're talking about people. And, and so this year, I, I, I don't want to focus just on the baby side of things because we, we, we talk often about that and we need to. But that's also true on the woman side of things. This is a person. This is a human being made in the image of God. We have to affirm the dignity of all human life. And so Jesus didn't call us just to, to make moral arguments, to moral positioning, we're talking about people, real people, not issues, not things, not statistics, but people. For, for every one of those millions of babies, 58 million babies in this country that have been aborted in the last 44 years, for every one of those, there are, for every one of those real, human, made in the image of God, image-bearing babies, there are real, human image-bearing women. Some of those situations that those women in were extremely difficult and, and tragic and seemingly hopeless. 
And some of the, so, so many of those women are, are carrying an immense load of guilt and shame as a result of that, as Sheila was testifying to. And so we, we can't simply kind of hide in the bunker of moral positioning on this issue. We have to remember that this is human life. We've got to address it all. There's nothing wrong with holding a moral position. We need strong biblical convictions on this issue. But that, that position should move us to action. Those convictions should, should move us with compassion. And that's what uh, I want us to see. So turn over a few chapters to Luke 10. And so Luke 7 was just kind of the warm-up. And we're in Luke 10 now. And then we'll, we'll look at this passage, another familiar passage, and then we'll get back to what this has to do with life and abortion and women. Luke 10 Verse 25. All right, before we turn there, most of you already know where we're going because you know about Luke 10. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. All right, very familiar passage. And so I've got no new wondrous finds that you've never thought of or considered here, but I, but I, I do want us to, again, see it with fresh eyes and to be, be, be challenged by what Jesus says in this passage. So Luke 25, let's start there. And behold... Again, this is one see, get this. A lawyer, uh, uh, not a lawyer like we think, an attorney arguing in a courtroom. This is an expert in God's law and the Torah. This religious lawyer. He stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test. All right, already we're thinking this guy is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You're putting the Son of God who wrote the Torah to the test. And he did this saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Or, Hey, you're a lawyer. Read it yourself. (laughs) Verse 27, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 28. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. He says, you've answered correctly, you've answered orthodoxly. He doesn't, Jesus isn't saying that he's grasped the full meaning of God's law. That's not it at all. He's not saying that, 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 um, that a person can earn eternal life by, by keeping some kind of contract with God, do this and, and you'll live. That's not his point. Jesus is, is exposing something in the sky that he wants to expose in, in us. And so verse 29, you get to see, he's smoking this guy out. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. So he, he knows his life doesn't match up with what he knows, what he believes. He, he needs to justify why his belief isn't playing out in his life. I know the answers, but this is, not, this is not my life. And so he asked, trying to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Legitimate question. Um, and remember, this lawyer is asking this question at a time when the, the Romans occupied Israel. And, and, and so the Roman Empire was the, was the dominant, dominant in the land. They're oppressing, they're exploiting the Jewish people and... and and, and their land, and he's asking, basically, do I have to love the Romans? The Samaritans? Who's, who's my neighbor? Who, who am I responsible to love? 
Let's define neighbors. Neighbor, okay, it's probably not just the person living next door to me, but so, so are you saying that I have to love those other Jews that are in those other regions, those backwater regions of Israel that I don't really care for and we don't have a lot of, a lot of respect for? Is it those Nazareth folks? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is that what you're saying? I have, those are my neighbors too? And again, remember, he's seeking to justify himself. Well, Jesus answers this question by telling a story. And this is that story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now everybody in the crowd, everybody that's listening, this man and those that are sitting around, they know about this road. They know how dangerous it is. They know this is not a place you go. It's not a road you travel alone. This is, this is a dangerous place. It's known for robberies and murders. And so they get it. Verse 31, Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, this half-dead, beaten, bloodied man, he went on the other side and passed by. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the people of God, represented by the, the leaders of the nation, these religious leaders, they passed right on by. You know what? I think this, this, is, this lawyer, this is a leader in the nation, I, I think he and probably his hearers kind of anticipate where Jesus is going to go with this story. They're expecting Jesus to say, and then an Israelite layman walked by and attended to his Jewish brother. They're thinking Jesus is going to kind of have this anti-clergy, anti-authority twist on the story. Okay, Jesus, I see. You're going to, you're going to say, you know, these leaders are buffoons, but the, but the common man, is he cares for the people. But that's not what Jesus does. What Jesus says is devastating to everybody. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. What? Samaritan? Jesus says, you have the gall to, to make the Samaritan the good guy in the story? You, 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 can't, you can't hardly overestimate the bitterness that existed between the, the Samaritans and the Jews. They, they loathed one another. This was the last person in the world you would expect to stop and help this man. Now, just as a side note, when you, when you read the Bible, when you read this passage, keep in mind, you're not the Samaritan in this story. <laughs> I know we, we, we tend to read the Bible and we put ourselves as the good guy in every story. No, you're the lawyer. I'm the lawyer. Maybe we're the scribe. Maybe the, 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 the Levite or the priest, the Levite. I, I don't know, but I'm not the good guy. You're not the good Samaritan, even if that's a nickname you use for yourself. But, um, verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And he asked this question, verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, 
the one who showed, showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Again, this is a stunning story. It's, it's, and, and the story, remember, it's not an answer to the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's an answer to the question, who's my neighbor? That's what Jesus is responding to. Who should we love? Who, who am I responsible to have compassion for? And, and you go back to verse 33, and this is, this is it. It's, it's about compassion. When he saw him, he had compassion. It's not when he, he you know, took three years of Greek and figured out uh, how to, how, what the Greek noun for compassion is, and, and when he learned that, he had compassion. That's not it. He saw him, and he felt compassion. Compassion isn't intellect. It's not unintellectual. It's not unintelligible, but it's not intellect. It's, it's a feeling. The word is, the idea is a feeling in the gut. It's something that's stirred up in us. This is, even Christ himself was moved with compassion when he saw the crowds. So it's not, again, it's not, it's not unintelligent. It's not purely emotive, but it is a feeling. And so, so on, in, on the Samaritan side, as Jesus tells the story, there's compassion going on inside of him. That's, what, that's what's in his gut as he sees this scene with his eye and sees this guy that's half dead and he's bloodied and beaten and all alone and nobody's helping him. He's, he's moved with compassion inside of him. And he acts. What about the priest? What about the Levite in the story? What, what's happening in them as they, as they see this and they cross on the other side of the street and get around this and keep going, get out of here quick. What was it that was going on in them as they pretended they didn't notice? Well, I think, I think it's evident of a couple of things. I think there was fear. Fear. It's a dangerous place already. This scene just kind of heightens that feeling. I mean, you're already a little nervous walking down this road. It's known for robberies and murders. And here you see this guy that's naked and bloodied and Maybe their robbers are still near, so that's probably part of it. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, I got my carry permit. I, I hope those robbers are there when, I, when they show up, you know. But with all your bravado, let me just say, it's a terrifying situation that, that, that this is. And so fear, fear, it paralyzes us from action. Fear stifles compassion. But we all have it. This is a struggle we face. One of, the, one of the narratives that has to be, we've got to scrub out of suburban Bible Belt Christianity is that the thing that's most important to God's heart is my safety. We believe that. Functionally, we do. Jesus does not guarantee our safety. He absolutely guarantees our security. We are secure. We, our eternity is secure God's care is absolutely certain for our lives, but we must be willing to run into the dangerous places that God calls us to to help those who are hurting and wounded and who are in desperate need of the love of Christ. And that's not always safe. We can't be controlled by fear. If we're controlled by worry and fear, we'll end up very small-souled people. We'll, re- we'll reduce Christianity down to you know, uh, a, f- a few rules that we follow and a few verses that we memorize and a few activities that we attend. 
and, and we'll just be kind of sitting on our couches, reading books, and, and, and trying to just not do some really bad things. And that'll be our life. Just trying to keep, keep all that out there. But, but Jesus, he didn't command us. After, after he died on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day, he didn't command us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, stay and be safe until I get back. And he says, go with me and make disciples of all nations and I will be with you always to the end of the age. He says, go. Fear can't grip us and hold us back from compassion. We've got to deal with that. I've got to deal with that in my own heart. Fear, worry, anxiety, that's been the perennial struggle of my life. So don't feel like this preacher is pointing at you. I'm preaching this to myself. Fear makes us walk on the other side of the street. Makes us silent. Makes us inactive. Makes us see... And rationalize in our minds why we don't need to stop and help someone. That's fear. Fear in the priest. Fear in the Levite. Fear in you and me. I think there's something else inside the priest and Levite that's also found in us at times. And it's this. It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. We, we may look at this bloody guy and think, this, this dude probably had it coming to him. Let me look at him. If he, if he was just more like me, if he, if he knew how to carry himself, if he knew how to, if he was more responsible with his life, if he, if, if he, he probably wasn't paying attention, he probably, probably not a very smart guy, he probably messed up. We can see hurt, hurting sinners, and maybe hurting because of their own sin even, and, 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 and yet because of self-righteousness, we refuse to move toward them in love because we're, we're so acutely focused on their sin. Remember where we were just at in Luke 7. We, if, if we forget the debt of sin we've been forgiven by Christ, we'll be not very inclined to move towards others in love who are sinners. And so self-righteousness, it hinders our ability to engage broken, bloodied, hurting, half-dead people. If they could just do what we do, if they could just live like we live, they must have it coming somehow. You know, this is definitely not from the text, but I mean, just this is kind of a side note, and this is for modern audiences. I, I think there's another reason, and I'm kind of playing off what I read from another author this week, but that we struggle with compassion, and it's distractions, and particularly technology. Now, this is not your pastor about to go into an anti-technology rant. I've got the glow of an iPad in my face, and, and I'm, I, I drank the apple Kool-Aid when I was in high school, and I haven't stopped, so... That's not, that's not my point. But I do think we're, we see an erosion of the human capacity for empathy and compassion because of this nonstop stimulation of technology. This constant streaming of information. And so there's, there's, a, there's a book. I haven't read the book. I read a quote from, I read a review of this book this week and there's a quote from the author, so I, I'm not familiar with the whole book, but it's a book called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age by Sherry Turkle. And, and this is this quote, I, it did grab me though. He says, she says, our 
rapturous submission to digital technology. That's already, it's going to be good. Our rapturous submission to digital technology has led to an atrophying of human capacities like empathy and self-reflection. When you speak to people in person, you're forced to recognize their full human reality, which is where empathy begins. A recent study shows a steep decline in empathy as measured by standard psychological tests among college students of the smartphone generation. And conversation carries the risk of boredom, the condition that smartphones have taught us most to fear, which is also the condition in which patience and imagination are developed. And so one of the reasons I think we're seeing this atrophying of empathy and and compassion that she's talking about is that we distract ourselves from feeling deeply. Our phones have so many apps and games and videos to, to distract us from feeling the brokenness of the world around us. It's a lot more fun to watch a video. A little satire piece. Check our social media feed. It's not just smartphones. Turn on television and just watch the news. And and and, and it switches so fast, our heads just spin. You know, five, five people died in, in, a, in an East Atlanta house fire, three children among the dead. And up next, a stray cat gets an opportunity to spend the day at the day spa. You know, it's just like, what just happened? And, but this, I mean, you really, you watch the news and you see the headlines and you see what the breaking news and it's celebrity gossip and it's, and it's terrorist attack. And it's, it's just, we're just spinning all the time. There, there's no place. How do, you, how do you switch gears like that, really? I haven't figured it out. There's no place, there's no space to lament. There's no space to weep. There's no space to grieve, to hurt. There's no space to be broken by all the, the, the that sin is done around us. And yet we're called to... Weep with those who weep, to grieve with the grieving, to be broken by the, the crushing weight of brokenness in this world and to be moved by it. But, but we're numb to it. So God, he, he doesn't call us to moral positions. Back to where we began. He, that's not the end. We need them. We need convictions. We need those positions, absolutely. And they need to be biblically informed. But we, we have to be moved to action. We can't be driven by fear, controlled and held back by fear. We can't be, be owned by self-righteousness. We can't just be distracted by technology. We have to be moved with mercy and compassion. That's what the Lord has called us to. Now, what in the world does that have to do with life and abortion and women? I hope the dots aren't too hard to connect, but let me, let me do that. We, we, we talk often about this issue, and we should, and we continue, and we will continue to do it. And again, we're not embarrassed by that. Abortion will go down as one of the greatest genocides in human history. I wouldn't be surprised, and I hope that this is the case, that if God allows me to live to be 80 years old, that we'll be talking about how unbelievable it was that we had abortion as it is legalized in this nation and in nations of the world, that we'll just be scratching our heads thinking, how is that possible? Tens of millions of little boys and girls have died. And so I want us to be serious about babies. Because God is. 
And, and we talked about this last week even. So I want us to rejoice and I want us to celebrate them. I want, I want us to have a church full of them. I want us to value them. I want us to fight for them. Even the unborn. And maybe especially the unborn because they're so vulnerable. And so if you disagree with me on that, and I, some of you may, in a group this size, you, you may have different views on abortion. I'm, st- I'm glad you're here. And this is not intended to be an angry wren, and I would love to talk with you, and you can talk to any, to talk to me, talk to one of our leaders, if you disagree with what you're hearing. If you have questions about this issue, I, I would recommend a website. It's, it's abort73.com, A-B-O-R-T-73.com. They have great, engaging articles. They're not combative, but they're a lot of scientific uh, reasoning. It's a Christian-run website, but it's not, it's, it's just very helpful, compelling Articles and videos and things to see on issues related to abortion matter. And so I want us to be serious about the babies. But I also want us to be serious about the women who are making these decisions. And, and this is why I'm so thankful for the support, the, the, we, uh, the partnership that we have with the Pregnancy Care Center in Jonesboro. And this is what you're hearing. It's these women that, that are they're being counseled. And, and sometimes the men, too, that are involved in these relationships. I don't, I don't say that to the neglect. They're, they're, and, and, and so there are these opportunities to sit down with real image-bearing women who are oftentimes in very difficult situations and care for them. And I don't want us to forget that. I'd, lo- I'd love to see more volunteers in that ministry and more supporters of that ministry. And, and I know our, our gospel outreach team, our GO team, is you know exploring ways to... To, to continue supporting there, and even are there other ministries that, like that, that in different phases of this type of ministry that we can be involved in. But not even just the more formal expressions of ministry and care for women and babies, I, but I hope and pray that we would be more personally involved with, with hurting people all around us, particularly hurting women who are wrestling with these issues, and those in our community, those that, in your workplace, those in your school, those... In, in, uh, in your neighborhood, um, in, our, in your family. And so with that, I just give a little caution. Um, be careful. I don't think this would be your intention, but don't be careful not to burn bridges with hurting women. And you don't even know it, but because of what you put out there on social media and things like that. Um, you, 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 may, you, may be, you may have eliminated the opportunity to talk and to love someone that you would love to talk with and care for by just reposting and sharing some little sarcastic comment and sarcastic quote that you saw on Facebook and you thought, huh, I believe that, so I put it out there. And you have somebody close to you that might open up to you, but they've seen that, it's done. They're not looking for you. They're not gonna, you're not seen as a compassionate uh, person again, there's nothing wrong with moral positions and those strong biblical convictions, and 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 moral positions are good and right, but they're best expressed in the context of loving relationships, not standalone sarcastic quotes on social media that can do more harm than help. Um, so I pray that we'll be a church of strong biblical convictions, but also full of Christ-like compassion for babies and for women. Generally, the circumstances women are involved in who are seeking to end a pregnancy are very complicated and difficult. Most abortions occur at or below the poverty line. And so, so we, need to, we need to get under the skin. We need to get in the skin of a girl who's, 
who's been used and abused her whole life. She has no vision for the future, no, no thought of college or of marrying one day a, a good, honorable spouse, finding a nice spouse, no capacity to even consider that there might be good days ahead for her life. That's a lot of women. She, she's, she's all, all, and, and this is all because of how life's played out for her so far. She's barely living. She feels like she's drowning. And then all of a sudden she finds out she's pregnant. I want us to be a church that's serious about her. Or, or the 22-year-old college student who went out one night and, and, and got plastered and can hardly remember things from the night. And now she finds out she's pregnant. And she's scared. And she's overwhelmed with, overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And she feels dirty. And she knows if her parents find out, they won't pay for her college anymore. And she's beginning to give in to self-hate. I want us to be serious about her, too. And on and on. I, I want us to enter into their sorrow. And this is not easy. I'm, not, I'm looking at Sheila, and she could tell story after story after story of the pain of entering into this kind of ministry and being right up close with this kind of ministry, and, and many of you can as well. And it's especially not easy for us. I think some of it, I know this is a generalized statement, but we live in our suburban Atlanta area, and, and one of the things we value more than anything else is efficiency. We love things to be efficient. We're four babies, we're four women, but we also want it to be super efficient we, we, we want results. I need to know that I'm not, gonna, I'm not wasting my time. I'm not wasting my money in this. But this kind of commitment to babies and women is going to feel very inefficient. Because it is. <laughs> results are a long time coming. Um, we need patience. We need to learn to plod in this. Your job and my job is not to solve this issue. It's not to fix it, fix this problem. We, we're simply to step into hard, complex, unsolvable situations and give ourselves to people, hurting people. That's what he's called us to. Not that we're all figured out, and then, then we move. We, we, we move with compassion and we act. We open our hearts, we open our homes, we open our dining tables, we, we love, we listen, we weep, we pray, counsel, hurting people. And we do it for the long haul. We do it for the long haul. There, don't ever underestimate what the grace of God can do by, by you just being present with a hurting person for a long time. I mean, there are stories to be shared, I know, where we've seen the evidence of what God can do right here in this room. So, so let's, let's be, church, let's, let's be very serious about babies. More than we've ever been. But let's not, let's not demonize the women and the men who come from oftentimes difficult and horrendous, horrific situations. Jesus doesn't handle people that way ever. <laughs> he didn't give a moral lecture or a statistic or a snarky comment on social media to the woman at the well, or to the woman caught in adultery, or to this prostitute at his feet. He lifts their head, he looks them in the eye, and he offers grace, peace. And so we've we got to be careful. 
in all of our enthusiasm. We've got to be careful that our, our moral posturing doesn't ever isolate or brutalize or beat up the very people that Jesus wants to show mercy to. And so, God help us. It's not easy. It's, it's not, not always easy answers and how to move forward. And it's not always, there's not the right way. There's no path for this. And this is, you know, point A, point B. And, and we just do these things to get there. And yeah, you've got to get an ultrasound machine and you've got to do this. And I'm sure the center looks very different than you probably imagined it would 20 years ago. And, and, and all, I mean, God directs us. But we've got to be moving forward. And he'll, he'll help steer us, and he'll guide us, and make mistakes. But we've got to be involved. We've got to be active, and we've got to pray. We've got to develop biblical convictions. We need those. We'll just be floating around. We've got to give. It takes funds and support these ministries, open our wallets. We've got we to volunteer. We gotta, we've got to love. We've got to, we've got to be broken. You've got to be moved with compassion. And so maybe that's the first thing that I need to do and you need to do this morning is just ask the Lord to soften our hearts. Help us to see what we've been missing, what we've been distracted by, uh, we've, we've been distracted from because of our fear or because of our, um, our self-righteousness or even because of our device, <laughs> what we've missed. God, give us eyes to see. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have hearts of compassion as individuals in this church and even as a body, a corporate body, that we would see you so work in us that, um, that uh, mercy um, for our community, mercy for people in our church, mercy for our family members, mercy for uh, this, this neighborhood, mercy for this area, for hurting people all around us, God. Give us eyes to see. Give us soft hearts to feel and, and uh, give us wills to obey uh, what you would call us to do and to move toward people in love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.